Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to Startup Nightmares. Startup Nightmares is a podcast that aims to inspire those who work in the startup world to do the best work they can the best way possible while dodging some bullets doing so. Let's just be a bit more human here. All of these people started needing stuff from me. Don't feel like you're on your own because you're, you're never on your own. But I'm paying this person a good wage. Why isn't that enough? And that doesn't make me special. What is making me special is my deeper story. People need a sense of purpose to feel motivated in their job. Wake up at five in the morning and like go to the gym for an hour. Like, what the fuck is that? You're sitting at your desk crying and you're like, what happened? I had no idea how to monetize anything. I was like, ah, everybody gets a title. You get a title, you get a title. Either pay me or I will sue you. All of our guests have been to the dark side of the innovation ecosystem and came back to tell their tale. You can use this. This is how you get there. It is not a secret anymore. My name is Tal Shmueli and I will be your host. Boaz, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. I'd like to start us off with something simple and basic, yet hopefully profound. Okay. Who Sounds are you? Promising. <laughs> what do you do and why do you do it? Cool. Uh, my name is Boaz uh, Gaon. I'm the CEO and founder of a company called Wisdo. Wisdo is a self-care emotional platform that matches people with other people who answer to three criteria. One is they've been in their shoes. The second is that they're helpful. And thirdly, they're available within 10 seconds and less. We make those matches and trigger those conversations. The reason I do this is because of a personal experience with my father that brought me very close to understand, to the experience of understanding how lonely it feels to be in the midst of a consequential life experience and not being able to find people who've been there, people who are helpful, people who are available, because the social world usually introduces you to popular friends, which is not necessarily what you need when you're facing a meaningful life moment. And that's in the era of Google. You're saying Wisdo started because there was a gap. The gap still exists, and the gap is, is getting wider. People go to Google to search for, as you said, content. They go to social to search for people, usually. And the way that the social universe is built because of, you know, the way it monetizes, et cetera, again, is it's what's called, you know, what's been called the social graph. So these are friends of friends of friends of friends, et cetera, et cetera. And all of you guys are ranked by popularity. In the past five to 10 years, there's been a, a major acceleration in what's been called the loneliness epidemic. So on the one hand, we've never been more connected, but we've never felt more isolated and we're disconnected. And part of the reason is exactly this, the way that we're introduced to other people via social, and there's a huge gap in the market and in our experience as, as online users, which is being introduced to people can actually make us feel better when we're going through something that is going to you know, change our lives. I've uh, spent a year living in London, densely populated, yet, like you said, felt so isolated. Yep. Friends living in the same city feel so far away. You have people like on the 15-minute walk to the office, you hear 20 languages, and yet everyone feels like they're strangers. They even appointed a minister 
for social loneliness, for loneliness, right? Yep. So imagine that all these guys that you met, you knew, imagine that you would have known that this guy, um, just like you, lost their dad. And that guy, just like you, has recently become a father. And that guy, just like you, is just starting a podcast or starting a company. You would feel much more socially supported and the social connections that you would have been able to make with each and every one of them would be much stronger than your connections with the people that your friends on uh, Facebook are. That is really what Wisdom is about. In a way, that's also why we started the show, because we realized people are going through extreme scenarios, good and bad. Mm-hmm. And there are so many insights, so many important things you can learn out of these moments, but you would never know. Just because someone is the founder of a company, I can assume certain things, but I wouldn't know for sure. Mm-hmm. And if we're able to elevate and celebrate and share those extreme scenarios, those, those moments in time that take you to the edge, then maybe we can provide some relief, some help to people who are going through that journey and need it. Yep. It's, I remember a use case that I heard about when you just got started. You were in stealth mode for a while, I think. Mm-hmm. And it was, imagine you're having to go through chemotherapy. One side effect would be losing your teeth. Mm-hmm. What if you could know that this is something that's going to happen? You can insure yourself, protect yourself, make sure that you put in the right steps in the process, but no one says anything about that. Well, even before that, you would feel much less afraid because, you know, nothing is more frightening than not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow. When you're embarking on a consequential life journey like cancer or like depression or like divorce or even a positive thing like parenting or starting a business, relocation, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And the only way to find out what might happen tomorrow is finding people who've been there and asking them. So the first thing that happens on Wisdom, um, and I know that we're going to talk about this in terms of design, but really one of the, the form, sort of formative aha moments from a product point of view was when we created this onboard that when you come in, we ask you, what, you know, what's on your mind? What are you going through? And you choose, say, breast cancer or parenting. And the first thing that pops up is a timeline. So these are steps that other people who've been through this experience have suggested as major to what it is that you're going through. And your first experience is, wow, you know, I'm not the first one. Other people have been there. There is a well-trodden path that has been paved by people going down this route. And then the engagement opportunity that you have as you join is to click either been there and people go been there, been there, been there, been there. And then the other, the other click is there now. And people go, they're now, they're now, they're now. And that's how they go into the product. So your first experience in Wisdom is very different than, you know, a Facebook or a Google for that matter. Because what happens is the community saying to you, you're not the first, you know, here's a glimpse of what might happen tomorrow. And behind the soundboard, there are millions now of people waiting to guide you to where you want to get to. That was a big, big breakthrough for, for the uh, sort of product framework. I'm curious to spend just a couple of more moments talking about loneliness. Mm-hmm. You know, we are at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Things are probably going to get worse, yep. uh, even though we thought we've been through the worst of it. Mm-hmm. What is loneliness? How does it manifest itself? And how can technology or product help alleviate some of the stress that it brings with it? Great question. So the core experience of feeling lonely is not being understood, not getting any resonance from your immediate surroundings that someone really understands what it is that you're going through. So it's true that one out of every three Americans feel lonely, according to you know, the latest CDC poll. But I think what's even more interesting is one out of four Americans say that they've never met someone who understood them. Again, going back to the context of the people that you're surrounded by, Online, while, you know, in the past 20 years, the percentage of people who are connected to at least one social media is in the 72-70% out of all Americans, which is unbelievable. So continuously being introduced to people who don't understand you and getting into a place where you're in constant fear of being 
ostracized because you're, you might say something that would be perceived as unpopular. That is what directly leads into loneliness. While what recedes loneliness, alleviates loneliness, is someone just saying to you, listen, I'm here for you. I understand. You know, those two simple words, I understand, are uh, kind of the loneliness antidote. And the fact that we don't have that in our, you know, day-to-day life, and we're continuously, you know, fearing people judging us for, you know, not being as happy or as successful as, you know, we should be, that is where loneliness, you know, erupts. So that, that I would say that's number one. Number two, it just processes that, you know, kind of modern society has, has gone through. You have more people living alone. You have families, you know, disintegrating. You have social mobility becoming something very, you know, on the one hand, very, you know, very positive, but on the, on the, on the other hand, something very demanding and frightening. So you're left feeling as if you're alone at the face of, you know, human existence. And the fact that we don't know what to do to fight that, acknowledge that and fight that, you know, I would say that, that that's the third thing in kind of the loneliness triangle. Social media had made us all the more connected and a byproduct of all the connectivity is this constant measuring, constant benchmarking. Mm-hmm. A competition, if you will, against our inner circle. Friends. Friends, <laughs> quote unquote. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, you know, we work with people who've worked at some of the world's biggest, you know, social media companies. And I think they were very honest, including people who founded the company. They were very honest in terms of, you know, encouraging that and, you know, in the social loops of getting you hooked on likes. Because, you know, obviously that increases engagement. And that was fine, you know. When, when, when it was just another company. But now that is how we connect to other people online. I mean, it doesn't, almost doesn't matter which product you use. So the effect on you know, human relationship was much more devastating than you know, the founders of these companies or, originally thought, which is why, again, we, we think there's room for, for a different type of company that would match people not uh, based on popularity and not creating this fear of being judged, but really based on similarity and helpfulness, where people are ranked by how helpful they've been to each other. So if you are in an environment where you go into a room and you know, you're know you going through something, you're just afraid to open up your mouth because everyone is going to start pointing at you and laughing. Imagine being the new person in a job, like you don't want to express your opinion. Exactly. Now multiply that, you know, workplace by a zillion and that's our, you know, human existence. You know, I have, I have a kid who's 16 uh, going on 17. This is high school extended to all of humans existence. Now high school should stop at some point and we should mature as human beings to understand that we can't rank our success in life by how many friends we have and, you know, are we liked by those friends or not? I mean, this, this should end when we're 18, right? I think we've gotten conditioned to live that throughout our adult life. And then when you're faced with something meaningful, you know, it's all good and fun and games and all that. But when something happens in your life where uh, meeting the wrong people or feeling alone has immediate costly consequences... That is when you feel the weakness of those type of connections. And that is where people try and find deeper friends, deeper bonds, and people that they can rely on because those people would look at them at younger, as younger versions of themselves. And in a way, the reason that they're helping them is because they're helping themselves. So kind of that's the psychological cycle that goes on there it's almost like you've taken the concept of a social network and transformed it into an emotional network absolutely social media has been scrutinized for so many things was there even a room or were people open to hearing about a new social network absolutely (laughs) i i think more than hearing i think people are there i don't want to say you know some of them are on the verge of being desperate for this type of connection but what we've seen is people yearning for, you know, a deeper sense of connection. They have, you know, they're on 
Instagram and they're on Twitter and they're on Reddit. They have all these things. They're not going to stop using them, but they need more. And when we get in front of these guys with pieces of content that we post on social or video ads that we post on social or you know stories that we put out there, you know we're, we're a startup, so we look at everything through conversion rates, et cetera. So the conversions are amazing, you know, it's, and the cost of acquisition is very low, which is a measure of how intensely people need this type of connection. And we've seen that accelerate tremendously over the past few months because of COVID. I mean, conversion to subscriptions has risen from, you know, around 10% to 25% in the past three months, just because people, you know, really need that sense of connection. I want to say just another thing about, you know, the way social is evolving. And I think you, you put it really, um, I think the first kind of magic, so that's how people kind of, I remember when, when I heard about Facebook for the first time, it was kind of, I have 3,000 friends on this new thing called Facebook. How many friends do you have? So it was kind of the magic there was I can connect to anyone on earth and this is a quantity game, right? I can get to 50,000 friends. I have 100,000 friends. How many friends do you have? I think currently that has kind of lost its allure in terms of, you know, the magic of it. Completely exhausted itself. Yeah. And I think the magic now is I found someone online. You know, you hear that. You won't believe this. I, I just found someone online and we connected like I've never connected to anyone, you know, in my life. The magic now in kind of the, the evolution of social media, I think, is around the quality and the strength of connections rather than the quantity of connections. And that is also connected to, you know, monetization models. So if you're an ad-driven business, then however you're going to turn this around, you know, I met one of the early co-founders at Facebook and, and you know, not, not Mark Zuckerberg, someone else. But, you know, he was one of the first 20 in the company. And he said, you know, we, we, we had all these great ideas and, and ideals. But when 80% of people who run the company are ad, ad, ad and sales guys, then, you know, they run the show. The game is continuously getting you, you know, monetizing your eyeballs and monetizing your data then eventually that is what's going to happen. You know, they're continuously going to look at other ways that can get you hooked on, on going back in the feed. If you, you know, if you move away from that and you see more and more um, wellness apps, you know, forsaking the ad model and going towards subscription, right? You see like, you know, Headspace and Calm and, and other apps going that route, you free yourself from the never-ending race after the need uh, to commercialize your users exactly you you find yourself just like a playwright tied to the satisfaction of the paying customer which is the guy who gave you six bucks a month yeah expecting uh, my product to do something for them exactly i mean you you work for them rather than the companies that advertise uh, on your platform so i think that's also part of the evolution of, of social media and now and, and why you find more and more apps rather than, you know, kind of web platforms that try to move away from the ad model and away from quantity for the sake of quantity and towards subscription and quality connections that people would be able, would, would be willing to pay for. The user sentiment is moving away from, you know, quantity of connections towards something deeper. And instead of three, four huge companies you're going to find more and more companies trying to solve the loneliness issue in various ways. And they're going to be smaller companies. They're going to be ROI companies. They're going to be subscription. They're going to work with either uh, consumers or employers. But there's going to be a sensible ROI there that doesn't necessarily bang on explosive growth and, you know, and ad revenues. Is there, is there a future without the famous hockey stick graph? Yeah, I think there is. You know, Headspace didn't have a hockey stick in Calm, didn't ha have a hockey stick in Noom. Noom. Noom does wellness through nutrition. Headspace does wellness through meditation. Calm does wellness through relaxing content. We do wellness through connections, what we call social wellness and social health. So uh, all these companies raise a lot of money on saying something very simple. It costs us X to bring in a user. We make three, four, five times that, and that's how we're going to 
grow the business continuously. The only companies that now have you know serious hockey stick graphs are either games for people 14 and 15 year old or you know like musically and, and that type of stuff. It's, it, you almost don't find that type of growth anymore. Let's say, let's say zoom out just a tad and speak about Wizdo as a business. Mm-hmm. How does the business model work? How do you find your users? And as a company, what do you want to change in the world? So we won't have enough time to, for the third question, but we're going to start. In terms of monetization and how we make money, we're a subscription app. You know, as I said, just, you know, much like many other wellness apps, you come in, you get a certain thin, fairly thin layer of experience just to give you a sense of what we are. And if you want to unlock all of Wizdo's features and access to a million and a half people who are there to help you, then you pay a monthly or yearly fee. That's the first layer of kind of revenue and monetization. The second is paid one-in-one sessions with experts, coaches, etc. in the marketplace model. As part of your subscription, you get a weekly group session with a coach that is automatically attached to you based on the profile that you've entered as you joined. And then if you'd like to book a one-in-one session with that coach, then you know, each of them have their own rate and there's a rev share between us and, and those experts. So those are the two main you know, revenue models that, we've, that we have in place. The first has been you know, live for you know, almost seven to eight months now. The second is, uh, has gone live about two, three months ago. Both are working very, very strongly. So again, in our world, we measure you know, LTV, our CAT kind of ratios. So right now we're at one, one to three and we want to get to one to five by the end of the year. Parallel to that, what's been interesting is that the kind of the wisdom technology, which is, you know, these crowdsourced timelines that match people to other people who've been there in a very interesting way and creates very high engagement, is finding more and more clients in the health space. Companies that have audiences where they are interested in, you know, increasing engagement by connecting their audience to other people who are similar to them. And getting, you know, some dashboards about the structure of the journey that is finding more and more, you know, players in the health space. And I think we're going to see some licensing, you know, revenues and fees there even this year. So between these two, three, I think uh, we're on a good track. So Wisdom has been around for what, four years now? Wisdom went live in January 2018. Before that, there was an earlier iteration called Medicope. which was uh, much less successful, but really was kind of the, the place where we figured out the timeline concept. And then out of that experience, Wisdom came about. Timeline concept meaning the ability of a, of a member or a user to place themselves on a certain journey, and that journey had been informed by people who have been there. Exactly. So you can see what's, what's ahead, what's waiting for you, the good and the complicated and the bad. And also speak about what you've already experienced to inform others exactly so one one publication described medicope as the uh, life with cancer app mm-hmm. not the most uh, appealing description but also very straightforward mm-hmm. was that was that company based on your experience it It was triggered by my own journey through cancer with my father my my father was A very well-known businessman in Israel and also the president of the Israel Cancer Association you know very powerful funny wise man in the 50s and 60s sense you know kind of this guy that could do everything he uh, he was diagnosed with cancer two years into his term as president of the ICA and, and passed away eight long years after that and once that ended he I promised him that I'd try to do something about it. So Medicope came out of that experience. You know, what we found with Medicope is that the, the, you know, the core of the idea was correct. But as soon as you, you begin to interact with a community in health, especially clinical health, very quickly it becomes, it spills over into additional life areas. So it's very difficult to contain them, you know, within cancer. You know, they're, they're immediately it's about... Well, I'm sending my son to college and, you know, the fact that I have breast cancer affects his journey. So can you do this for college? Can you do this for divorce? Because unfortunately, there's a high, very high rate of divorce amongst 
families that have been inflicted, you know, with breast cancer because it affects the relationship very, very badly and severely. So it was very difficult to contain it within one vertical. And also, uh, you know, the original business model was much more about B2B play and insurance companies and all that. And um, we were kind of, in, in our DNA, in my DNA, I'm, I'm much more of a consumer guy and very long sales cycles tend to kind of uh, not be something that I um, prefer. And I prefer to just uh, cater to the audience and, and uh, you know, move much more quickly. I'd like to speak a little bit about the transition between Medicorp and Wizdo, but before doing that, um, just want to say that I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your father. Thank you. Of course, I knew the backstory because it was covered, but it had set you on a, on a journey, probably, probably diverted you from where you were going. Yeah. What was your life before, before that watershed moment, and, and how did you realize I'm going to have to change them? I was a journalist uh, for most of my professional career before Medicope. I was a journalist and writer and playwright and storyteller. And um, when my dad got sick, I became his primary caregiver together with my brothers and sisters. But specifically, I was in charge of information because I was the journalist. I tried to tap into my experience as an investigative reporter and uh, really to come out with something that would help. And that was, that was a total failure. So total I, failure I, because when it came down to it, there was nothing you could do to reverse the progress of the cancer? It's, it's not an information problem. It's not, there's nothing out there that you can discover that would really change things. It's much more about acceptance trying to understand how this is going to affect your family and yourself. It's about things that the clinical journey has nothing to do or almost nothing to do with. Psychological implications and financial implications and end-of-life issues. You know, it's these things that the, the clinical world can do nothing about and, and information doesn't help. Really, the only thing that does help is wisdom. You know, if you meet someone who's been through a similar journey and he can he says to you listen you know there's one thing that i can tell you is here's how to say goodbye you there's nothing that you can search for that would even if you would find something online it wouldn't help because it's it's just another result in a zillion results that you've you know one example that i really like that one i remember that one of the breast cancer uh, survivors that we've worked with said She said that the problem with Google is that two weeks after you've been diagnosed, all the links are purple because you've clicked through them. Like you've read everything. There's, there's, there's nothing out there that you haven't read or looked at. But if you meet someone and, and that you know, person says to you something that you didn't even know how to search for and that really helps eventually, those are the moments where you say, that was very helpful. So I think that, first of all, the... the You know, in my experience, there was a kind of um, crisis of faith around uh, information being kind of humanity's way out of feeling alone. And, and you know, there's something, there's an innocence in thinking that you can rationalize and informationalize your way towards happiness. And I don't, I, today, I don't think that that's necessarily the case. I think happiness is find, found elsewhere. I think it's found in wisdom. Not in wisdom, in wisdom. That was one, one thing that happened. I think the other thing that happened is just things in the market change and in, in, the, in the content industry and journalism uh, specifically that I really, really enjoyed and loved, you know, unfortunately kind of fell apart. And I think it's an industry that imploded very quickly. There was a sense that if you, you know, if you want to do something meaningful that has something to do with content and something to do with stories then you would need to try and find a way where you can do this online rather than the older kind of structures of, of media, which is television, you know, and print. Um, and the two kind of came together. So in a way, there were two endings happening, happening simultaneously. One was journalism as a, as a career choice became not the best one, to mm -hmm. say the least, became harder to make a living and so on, and you've seen that. And the other is that personally, that specific skill set only took you this far. And when you needed something to save the day, it wasn't that. Mm -hmm. So I want to go to that, to that 
moment where you realize it's not about getting to the better doctor. It's not about getting a second, third, tenth opinion. It's not about being able to get into that specific research that's being conducted in Nicaragua. When that front had failed you, what were you missing in order to cope with that watershed moment of saying goodbye to your father? That's not fair. I'm going to start crying in like 35 seconds. There were many moments like that, but when your father asks you, try and find out where is the best play to die. Is it at home? Is it in the hospital? Is it at a hospice? And your dad is asking you that question. It's a moment where you, first of all, there's a responsibility there that goes beyond uh, you know, just Googling and finding an answer. You really want to try and find something that would ease this person's pain. Now, I don't want to break your you know, audience's heart, but everyone is going to die. Uh, and all of us are going to go through that. And all these questions that all of us are going to go through that and have gone through uh, them, they're just unanswered. They don't exist online. And, and if they do, it's, you know, the answers are like half-baked. The answers are in people that have gone through this. And in most cases, the wisdom and the knowledge is in their brains and in their experiences and in their hearts and in their traumas. And, and they're inaccessible. You know, it's like you walk down the street, chances are you're going to meet six people that if you, you know, spent a, a, an evening with them, you would learn more valuable things about your life than, you know, six hours of Google search. Just because for those type of questions, you know, how to fall in love, uh, how to leave, you know, if, if the relationship isn't working, how to say goodbye to someone that you love. So, so that was one very difficult moment. I'm sure it was. For eight years, there's always the hope of we can fix it, we'll make it work, and, and the knowledge that we might not be able to. So living in that dissonance for so long must have taken a, a toll on you and, and on family. I think, I think it's even, it's even uh, worse uh, because I think that when you're going through something like cancer um, or something, and again, uh, you know, maybe this is an Israeli thing, I don't know, or maybe, maybe it's a ma- male thing uh, or a male Israeli thing, which is the worst. But <laughs> it takes, uh, <laughs> takes manliness to the extreme. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Israelis, Israelism to the extreme. <laughs> uh, but um, there's the illusion that it's a battle. It's like you're fighting cancer or you're, you're, you, you need to win this. And it's all about the fight. And, and then one day you realize, thank God I'm not divorced. I haven't, you know, I have a very happy marriage, but, you know, I, I have friends who've been divorced and they talk about when you realize what, what this is doing to your children or in cancer, when you realize it's over, there's nothing that you can do. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. 
those those moments where you understand that there's nothing more to do uh, are also moments where you understand that you've completely neglected you know a whole range of practices and lessons and you know thoughts and conversations for maybe years that have damaged your situation severely um, instead of helping and that neglect and you know understanding that type of neglect is is a very difficult moment because you feel guilty you feel like an idiot and that is a result of us thinking that And embracing the notion that we are alone you know it's us against the world it's us against this thing and we need to we need to somehow prevail and humanity doesn't work like that I mean organism doesn't work like that we're all social animals you know we're all surrounded constantly by other people and the only moments of relief is when you sit down with someone who lost his dad or her dad and you know and they say you We made the same mistake then you're not guilty and you shouldn't feel this way I'll give a, a very different example for my own life it's substantially different it's back to work it's very isolated but I had a very complicated situation at work where I filled for my job and I filled for my well-being and what I ended up doing is picking up the phone and calling a lawyer mm-hmm. instead of a friend I was panicking and I don't know why I wanted to protect myself. So instead of calling my best friend and saying, listen, that's my situation. This is how I'm feeling. What should I do? I called a lawyer. Yep. And started quoting pieces of my contract and explained the situation. And guess what advice I got? A lawyer's advice. Yeah. And, and that created the chain reactions because I acted on, on a lawyer's advice versus on a friend's advice, someone who knows me, who can contextualize the situation, who would help me prioritize. What is more important in that situation? winning the battle against your employer or, you know, exiting a bad situation and moving on or spending the time you have doing something constructive, promote your healing instead of prolonging a battle. I think these are, these are those types of things where we have a, a mental playbook where we want to we do something. We want to feel beneficial when maybe we're not looking at it through the right lens. I think there's uh, I think it's easier to try and uh, reach out to a practitioner because then you you're not emotionally involved you know it's like you don't you stay very emotionally protected or so you think but practitioners are not the right people to talk to in these situations or you you know not only the, the right people to talk to in those situations because they've never been there you know if you if I go to a doctor and say listen you know my dad just asked me how best to die and where best to die you know he's gonna say well what do you want from me you know I just talk to the nurse <laughs> it they don't they don't play that game they're in the game of giving you the bland they would give you that that lawyer gave you and the hundred people that call before you and the hundred people were going to call after you the exact same answer that will never work because you need to personalize the situation so it was you legal advice or medical advice versus what I'd like to categorize as life advice. I don't know how philosophically you want to get, but there's, there's a, a lot of literature about wisdom and what wisdom is and how wisdom is different than knowledge. You know, the first person to uh, define what wisdom is, like everything else, is um, you know, Aristotle, a crazy genius Greek guy. who, you know, after he finished defining uh, drama and politics, decided to define, you know, the types of knowledge that exist in the world. And then he, he talks about the various types of knowledge that exists. And he tries to figure out what's, what he calls the master virtue. What's the type of knowledge that you need to acquire as a human being to thrive in life? You know, a very simple question. And then he talks about scientific knowledge and militaristic knowledge and artistic knowledge. And then he talks about practical wisdom, phonesis in Greek, which is our Wi-Fi password at wisdom. <laughs> and uh, he ends up writing and, and proving that practical wisdom is, uh, is superior 
to any other types of knowledge because of two reasons, primary reasons. One, it's the only type of knowledge that you can never have too much of, which I think is typically brilliant. You know, if you have too much militaristic knowledge, you can become, you know, stupid uh, and rush into battle. Yep. A paralysis by analysis type exactly. situation. Exactly. And if you're too artistic, uh, you know, you can become aloof and, you know, lose touch with, with the audience and all that. But you can never have too much practical wisdom. And then the second is that he gives, he tells this really, really amazing story about how he used to walk, because he's Greek, so he used to walk to his, I don't know what, office, I, I don't know. <laughs> he used to work to where he would do his writing. And then on the way, he would see these, these um, shipbuilders. The shape of the boat was curved. And they used to use like straight rulers to uh, build these boats. And he got obsessed with how are they doing it? You know, how are they coming up with this really in- interesting curved shapes with using straight rulers? And he spent like, you know, months trying to, you know, figure out the math and all that. And then he got tired and then he walked to them and he said, how the hell are you doing this? And the guy took the ruler and just... bent it and he said yeah we've been doing this for hundreds of years that's how we do it that's how he starts the conversation around practical wisdom there are things that only experience can teach you and the way that wisdom is different from knowledge going back to your lawyer it's always wisdom is about you okay so a divorce a, a, a lawyer who maybe he if he was a friend and he would want to help you he wouldn't give you you know a bland piece of advice he would ask you questions so what's going on and where did you grow up and you know it's it, it's always about you and it's always about a particular circumstance and a particular relationship and it's something much more personalized and much more flexible than just a random bland answer that can be relevant to thousands of pe- people yeah And, and that's, you know, and that's, I think, is, you know, I think that when we meet wise people, that's the sense that we get out of them, that, you know, that they have a broader perspective and they have, uh, and it's all about, and they care, you know, if you sit down with them, you're going to feel that, yeah, they're saying really smart things, but they care about you and they want you to be happy. So I'll use that as a segue into the next part of the conversation, which is the transition between being a playwright and a creative professional. into tech, into business. A small example for the sake of conversation before I do that. So if I ask Google for a, to recommend a good wine, I'll get a list of top 10 wines from Israel, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And I can filter them by price, by this, by that. When I ask my uh, best friend and our executive producer, Eyal, like I need to get wine for, for dinner, I get a series of questions. Exactly. What are, we, what are you eating? <laughs> What's the price range? What does she like? Who are the, the guests? Yeah. And so by the time, if I survive the interrogation, I'll come out with the best recommendation possible mm-hmm. because he cares. He wouldn't give me a, a, a blank recommendation It's for a great example because otherwise, you know, he'll be doing me a disservice. Mm-hmm. You were a playwright. Do you still think of yourself as a playwright? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, I still write. You still write? Like being write. the CEO of a startup isn't painful enough that you have to take on <laughs> <laughs> another type of misery. <laughs> That little thing blinks at you, judging you. <laughs> uh, I love writing. I love writing drama. And there's something very mathematical in constructing stories. Again, as the same crazy Greek taught us in, uh, in poetics. So I still write, I still love drama. I think the notion that CEOs and founders can't do anything except run their company is false. Yes, it's going to consume your life and you're going to do this 190% of your time, but you can and should try and find time to do stuff that enriches you and deepens you and uh, keeps you alive. There are quite a few similarities between storytelling and running a company and starting a company. I don't feel it's a, it's a departure. I think it's an extension. What was a day like as a playwright? <laughs> you wake up at 12 drunk. No. <laughs> yeah. You know, try and figure out where you woke up. 
What happens? You put on your corduroy blazer. Exactly. You go down to the nearest cafe. <laughs> you wake up in prison. <laughs> no, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a job like any other job. Trying to come up with the best draft of a play to get into a place where you can give this to actors. And then if you're fortunate enough to have a, a theater kind of, you know, wanting to produce it, then you, um, you go to work. You wake up in the morning, you go to, to the rehearsal room, uh, you work on scenes, you know, this thing does work, this thing, scene doesn't work. All the actors take you aside to explain that really their character <laughs> is really the core of the story. And it would really help if they would have a three-page monologue. Uh, Holding you know, a skull under the spotlight. Exactly. So when you're describing it, I don't know if you did it on purpose or not, but it sounds like you're prototyping in your room a play, and then you mm -hmm. go to the VC and ask them to fund it, the theater. Very similar. And once they do that, you start iterating and you start spitting out scenes and seeing how they're received and how do they meet an audience until you have the final product and you launch it. One key difference... I'm trying to take this analogy all the way through. One key difference would be, money. The, <laughs> would be in the type of work you do. So I imagine I've, I've, I've written quite a bit back in the day and it is to write well, I needed long stretches of uninterrupted work. Mm -hmm. Four hours, eight hours, knowing I've got nothing in my diary, knowing that there's food in the fridge and I can just go in and, and play with it. Something that as a CEO... How often do you get more than one and a half hours of uninterrupted time? Not a lot, which is to say never. I used to teach uh, playwriting for years, and I loved it. I don't think that is the right way to describe the process of writing. I, maybe, maybe, you know, I think prose, I don't know if you wrote prose or drama. I think prose is different than, um, and, it, and poetry is certainly different than both of them. But the act of drama primarily playwright uh, plays and screenplays it's it's much more about the architecture of uh, of the story so most of your time if you're doing your job properly you are spending on constructing well-engineered story and most of your time you're you're working on the three-act structure or the five-act structure or whatever structure you want you like working with and really trying to build the the perfect story. And then when you have that, uh, which is the trickiest part, you end up working on, on various scenes. So, you know, you can work on this scene and that scene and this scene. And, it, you know, it, it never ends. And much like a company, much like a story, um, you, you, you're always rewriting and rewriting, you know, until it meets the audience. And then the audience plays a role in, you know, in the continuous rewrite of, of the story. So I think, you know, I think, um, I don't think that it's kind of this Zen metaphor of sitting on a mountain and waiting for inspiration. Transitioning from a creative professional into business, into tech, what parts of your creative work did you take into your second life? So first of all, storytelling. I think that if you're an entrepreneur who doesn't know how to tell the story, I think you're gonna you know I, want, I don't want to be harsh, but I think the chances of success are very, very, very slim. because even if you are able to come up with you know some sort of story that you tell yourself to get you going, then you need to tell a story to raise money. And then you need to tell a story to raise to, to recruit people. And then you need to tell a story to retain people. And then you need to tell a story to raise more money. And it's, it's like this ongoing project. And I think that storytelling is, is um, maybe the one out of the three most fundamental talents that you should try and, and develop. And, and I had, there, there are a ton of things that I don't know how to do, but I think storytelling is one thing that, I, that I'm pretty good at. What would you say to people who'd say storytelling sounds a lot like, excuse me, bullshitting, finding ways to explain things? Are they like CEOs or <laughs> because if they are, I think they're going to be in trouble soon. Audiences need, you know, there's a, there's a famous, another story. There's a famous, you know, the story of Hannibal crossing the Alps and, uh, you know, he crossed the Alps with like, elephants and, you know, it's like this impossible thing. 
And it turns out that he, that the, when you look at the route that he took, it was like three times longer than what, what it should be. And when uh, one, of the, one of the generals asked him, why did you take this route? He said, I, I, because that's the only route where you can, can always see Rome. And I wanted them to see where we're going. And, and, and that's what stories do when you're in a, in a, in a kind of entrepreneurial setting. You need to show people where you're going and where they're going. You're not telling the story to entertain them. You're, you're telling a story because it's true. You know, you're not inventing something. You're using the truth of the situation and then you're using the story just to communicate it in a way that would get their attention and get their, you know... Um, Emotional resonance. Exactly, exactly. I was... Yeah. pleasantly surprised by how quickly you untangled that uh, that uh, <laughs> dilemma for me but if I am to challenge that a tad more then is there a slot in your diary that says nine o'clock board meeting 1030 one on one with chief marketing officer 11 think about the story no it's seamless into your day into your thinking absolutely you do it you do it all the time It's like, you know, it's like asking a question, do you have a slot in your diary for you reminding yourself why you're doing it? If you don't have that, it's not part of your, the way you conduct things, then nothing else is going to, f- you won't have a board, you won't have a chief marketing officer, and you won't have a company. You, you, do re- you really do need to feel that what you're doing is deeply, sorely needed in the world. And then like in anything that you do, believe deeply in you need to share that vision with others uh, because you can't do this alone <laughs> it's it's tough it's a tough 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 business if you can't do this with other people who end up believing in what you're doing almost as deeply as you do then you're just going to fail if what you took with you was storytelling the other side of that question is what did you have to unlearn in order to fully realize yourself as a founder and a CEO? Great question. I think when you are a writer, you, you know, your, your focus is on getting your story out there uh, almost by every means necessary. Um, and then it's someone else's problem. So if the theater wants it, then it's their problem. You know, find a director, find the actors. I think when you're a founder, you find out, and I don't want to sound, again, I'm, I'm the... I'm the least perfect in every almost every you know business scenario but I think you have to try and focus on people who are really good at what they do and if someone is not as good as he or she is even if you love them even if they're great then that's gonna have that's gonna that's gonna pay a price that's gonna come with a price at some point that was a learning curve for me until I until I realized that it's not personal It's, you know, it's for this company at this moment, it's not a fit and it's not a matter of being nice and, you know, kind of pe- hurt, you know, hurting people's feelings. If the more you do delay, delay it, the, you know, the more complicated it's going to become. And if, you know, if you need to like part ways, then it should happen, you know, fairly quickly. And it doesn't matter you know how much you work at making it better and trying to fix it and in my world as a writer you know it doesn't matter how many drafts you're going to come up with if that person isn't good for the job or fit for the job for this specific company doesn't matter it doesn't mean that it can't thrive or she can't thrive in a, in a different company you need to make that decision and you need to make that decision quickly that was a learning curve. And, and I would say, you know, and I would say, you know, making money, you know, revenues is not necessarily something that you're focused on as a writer. And I think that as a company founder, you are made painfully aware very quickly of how um, important it is that the company become sustainable quickly, as quickly as you can. That was my own journey as a, into being a, a CEO. So it opened up like three mental browser tabs for me. One is that. perfectionism as a playwright like you know when you have that 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 feeling of like yes mm-hmm. it's done now nothing I can add will make it better how do you scale that in a company where you have competing agendas 
egos, lack of resources, in, uh, with the one design awards. And yep. when I think of 99.9% of the work I produced, it's hard for me to say I'm proud of what it looks like or what it feels like. It was good enough to be released sometimes. Mm-hmm. How do you put out a product that, that wins awards for that? I think it starts with going back to what I just said. It starts with the people that you, that you hire. And I think that it's worth taking the time to sit down and write, not who are the people that you would like to work with. That's easy. Who are the people that you need to find? What are the skills that you lack as a person and as a professional and the company lacks? That you have to find for uh, the team to become you know equipped to to nail what it is that you're trying to nail even if you don't know you know you don't have access to these guys un- until you try to write down who are you missing what are the missing pieces uh, it's very difficult to try and find them I think what happened with wisdo is that the company continuously improves and, and it has and improved the fit between what the company does and who are the people working on, on you know making it happen uh, until we got to a point where it was a you know today it's a very very tight fit and there's and you mentioned you know ego there's no ego at all in the company today there are no politics at all in the company today it's all about the work I would say that's that's number one and the second thing is and then maybe and maybe that's the third thing that I that I learned as a founder is is uh, is being data driven and and being reliant on data so with all due respect to inspiration and this looks nice and that looks nice eventually you know you're gonna release something and and the users are gonna like it or not and you have to be very very honest with whether you What you've built is clicking or not, and if it's not clicking strongly, then you need to fix it. Yeah. Data has a different name, and that's experience. And true. If you, and if you're coming into a true. new world where you, haven't, where you haven't you know, necessarily been there before, you haven't been in a similar situation, then either buy that experience in and form other people who have done it, or ask them to present more data to justify their decisions. That makes total sense for me. Mm-hmm. What, what was remarkable to me was the quickness with which you adopted the uh, the startup or tech lingo mm-hmm. you mentioned cuck cost of cattle acquisition LPV lifetime value and if I didn't know you had a background in, in as a creative professional I, I thought you were born into it how did you ramp up quickly into the role of a CEO I mean you had to hire people who was doing... that quickly no you know it's, it's I think it's it's uh, you uh, you learn the lingo you By doing it, I think one doesn't one shouldn't uh, underestimate the uh, the pain involved in failure as a incentive to try and get really good at what you are doing. Like the Freudian uh, uh, saying that we live our life uh, being drawn to pleasure and trying to stay away from pain, so failing feeds that fear It's of a, pain. It depends what it is that you're trying to do. I promise my dad. <laughs> And that's it. You know, it all goes back to that. And I'm not going to, if it's between disappointing my dad and not learning what I need to learn and doing what I need to do, then there's no dilemma. So I think that if you are doing this for the right reason, and if you are really, really deeply motivated by something very, very personal, and, which is true, it's not you have to, you know, you have to invent it. It's really something that goes to the core of who you are. You have an advantage on, on other people. And also, it's hard. People should know, you know, it's hard. It's not, it's not an easy thing to do this. And you need some sort of fire to uh, keep you going. That was the third uh, mental browser tab that was open for me was emotions. Mm-hmm. The business world likes to think of itself as a, as a kind of like sterile, a very uh, objective KPIs, metrics, and you're approaching a business problem which is making Wido sustainable and, and, uh, and make it even lucrative. Mm-hmm. But you're approaching it with, I don't want to say it negatively, but with emotional baggage. Like you have a, you have a stake in mm-hmm. seeing that problem solved, whereas for others, investors customers this is a service this is a business opportunity mm-hmm. 
how do you manage that emotional intensity that you bring with you to a business situation? You try to use it where it's needed and, and not misuse it when, where it's not needed. And I think there is the fear of, like you point out, that you would you know, misuse uh, your emotional drivers in places where you know, they're uncalled for. If it's a board setting, if it's a feature launch, someone who says no to you, um, you know, when you try and raise money or when you try to hire someone, you can't get too uh, personal. And you can't take it personally because it's not personal. It's, you know, that, that person didn't like you or didn't like the company. It's fine. Or even more painfully when someone, you know, does something that he shouldn't have done or, you know, betrays your trust and all these things. But uh, when, when it is called for, then that's the only thing that would get you through this. The only thing. Not the promise of money, not the promise of glory, it's only your commitment to try and crack this. I think most companies fail because of that. I think at some point, the founders run out of steam. And, all, and then all the rest of it falls, into, you know, falls to pieces. Kind of like you said earlier on, it's not an information problem. No. <laughs> it's not a what to do next problem. It's something else. It's something deeper. We live only once. We might as well try and do something worthwhile in the one and only uh, shot that we have. You know, if you're out there and you want to start a company and you want to pursue something that is going to take over your life for years, you know, you know this is going to, any way you look at it, it's going to be five to 10 years of your life, then try and find something worth that type of dedication. Uh, something that, you know, if you look back, you would say, you know, maybe I succeeded, maybe I didn't succeed, it was a worthwhile journey, and you know I couldn't be more happier than I than I, that I dedicated that you know piece of my life to trying to pursue that. And there are always going to be other stuff, companies who do like uh, you know this widget and that widget, and you know and and more money and less money. I think there's an opportunity now to come up with some amazing ideas, and I think that the online audience is yearning for better, life improving experiences and I would urge you know entrepreneurs to try and find something that would help people's uh, lives in a big way because because then they would be able to look back and say I did the right thing doing your creative work and working on wisdom part of your personal mission I also know you're passionate about living this world a better place than what it was when you entered it mm -hmm. what would a better world look like Better world, first of all, wouldn't be as lonely um, as the current one is. Uh, I think people would not think that, you know, the only way to go through this life is to try to solve whatever it is that they need to solve by their own because they're ashamed or because, uh, you know, they don't know how to find the right people and to legitimize that, that way of life. I would say that's you know that's that's number one for me and why why we're doing this thing that we're doing in my company. So I think loneliness would be number one. And I think I was fortunate enough to grow up in a very well connected family that had access to the best doctors and best hospitals and and most people don't grow up like that. And I think that what we're trying to do is to create a world in which your personal networks. Won't, shouldn't define how successfully or unsuccessfully you're going to deal with things like coming out or starting a business or, you know, you know did your dad find, found a business or do you have friends or does your dad know friends that started a business? Those type of questions shouldn't determine whether you can succeed in this or not. So if we can, you know, if we can um, change these two things, I think the world would become uh, a much better place. Boaz, you and the, your team have taken on a serious undertaking in forming Widow, and it feels like a company with a purpose, the right people, the right place at the right time. I wish you all the best in the months to come. I know there are a few complicated ones ahead, and I know you hold yourself to a higher standard than anyone else would hold you. Um, family included and I wish that you'll fulfill that standard and Thank go to you, bed brother. 
happy and satisfied because if there's someone who deserves that feeling at the end of the day, I think it's you and your team. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for what you're doing and letting me tell my story. Our absolute pleasure. Thank you. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.